the dark days are done and the bright days are here my sunny one shines so sincere sunny one so true I love you Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was Rita singing Sonny and Frank Sinatra saying, here's Johnny tonight. He hosted the Tonight Show. This is John Barber, almost live in Las Vegas. And I say, almost live, because the heat is killing me. I mean, how hot is it, John? (laughs) It is so hot that when Satan wants to punish the real evildoers, he sends them to Vegas. I mean, it's even too hot for Superman. You know, we've all heard when some people die, if you can't say something good about them, say nothing at all. So when some people did die, I said good. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I did say that about Earl Warren years ago and some Facebook friend who actually loathes, loathes Jim Garrison, heard me say that. And he sent me a picture of Earl Warren's gravestone with these lofty words on it saying that this is what we should live by. Now, here is what the gravestone says. It says in quotes, where there's injustice, we should correct it. Where poverty, eliminate it. Where corruption, stamp it out, unquote. So I wrote back and I said, sir, it's easy for him to say now that he's hiding in the ground, hiding from the fraud of the Warren report he saddled America with. Well, he sent me back another note saying that he read the 26 volumes of the Warren report, proving that Jim Garrison was the fraud. So I wrote back again. I said, listen, if you read and got through the 26 volumes sober, You can certainly take out the time to spend two hours and two dollars watching the American media in the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And if you can refute one single fact in that film, I will refund your two dollars and pay for the liquor bill for watching the movie. I got back another note from him saying, Mr. Barber, our friendship is dead. And I sent him back another note saying, good. (laughs) I'm telling you, I have some really interesting fans. I want to share with you right now a letter that I got from one of our viewers. It's a letter that he wrote by himself, and he wrote it for his own amusement. He wondered what to do with it, so he sent it directly to me. And I'm going to read it to you. It's very brief, and it's called Letter to My Boss. And it says, I'm enjoyed working here these past several years. You've paid me very well, given me benefits beyond belief. I have three or four months off per year and a pension plan that'll pay my salary till the day I die and a health plan that most people can only dream about. Despite this, 
I plan to take the next 12 to 18 months off to find a new position. During this time, I will show up for work when it's convenient. In addition, I fully expect to draw my full salary and all the other perks associated with my current job. Oh, yes. If my search for this new job proves fruitless, I will be back with no less in pay or status. Before you say anything, remember that you have no choice in this matter. Signed, sincerely, every senator and congressman in the United States of America. That's adorable. Anyway, I want to share with you right now. The only guest to ever appear on our show for a third time is a graduate of Columbia University whose first book, The FBI's War Against Tupac Shakur and Black Leaders, was and is a blockbuster read. His second, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, is frightening, informative, factual, and fabulously researched, beginning with how the world was taken over by the opium trade and ending with how the drug trade has taken over Wall Street. A brilliant writer and now a wonderful filmmaker, John Potash. John, thank you so much for being back here, and good luck and congratulations on your documentary. Thanks so much, John. I enjoyed your documentary very much on JFK, too. Thanks for uh, letting me see that. Oh, you're, you're, you're more than welcome. Anyway, I have so much to ask you, and I want to start with, you know, your book, Drugs Against, uh, as Weapons Against Us, is over 400 page, uh, pages. Every single page, John, has something truly insightful and informative. And the wonderful thing about your writing is you are very non-editorial and judgmental, like Jack Webb, uh, you just said, report the facts. How is it possible? How is it possible that you you could make a film, a documentary, and get all of these unbelievable stories into your film? Well, it, it was hard, you know. To, to I had it at two twenty. I mean, originally I had it at three hours, of course, and no one's going to watch that film. But then I cut it down to two twenty. And uh, two hours and 20 minutes was um, what I planned to show, but um, it was actually hard for me. I'm bad with technology, so it was hard to get on filmfreeway.com for the film fest uh, at 220. So I had to go for the two-hour two movie to load up there, and because um, I made a two-hour one for some film fests that only have a limit of two hours. And uh, so now it's, it looks like the two-hour one is what's going to be in there, and, and I think yeah, you know, I made sure I covered the uh, four guys in the center of the uh, cover, cover, you know, picture. The four musicians: uh, Kurt Cobain, Tupac Shakur, Jimi Hendrix, and John Lennon. But then, of course, I also had to cover the Students for a Democratic Society and the Black Panther Party, and uh, you know, some of the other key folks like JFK and RFK, in how they relate to the theme. Because, you know, I just thought I, I, I got the key people in there in the two hours. I couldn't get everybody on the cover in there, but I got most, you know, most of the key people in there. So I'm glad uh, that you liked what you saw and, you know, thought it, it encompassed the book pretty well. It, it's staggering. And uh, when I when I reread the book, and every time I reread the book, it's like I discover something new and I've read it three times. Thanks. When Thanks you were so researching the book, and even researching the other mm-hmm. book about the FBI and Tupac Shakur, what was the one thing that shocked or surprised you that you did not expect to find? 
Well, I guess uh, part of it, you know, part of the most interesting thing that I, I didn't figure out in the first book that I figured out for the second book is the way that uh, what um, Catherine Austin Fitz said about Wall Street and the way uh, drugs and drugs sold on the street ties into Wall Street and uh, the way multinational corporations, she said. Now, she was, you know, of course, a, a Wall Street insider, worked for the top firms on Wall Street and was assistant secretary of housing under George Bush Sr. But she was also a whistleblower and, uh, you know, evolved and became very progressive and in her, her thinking and the way she presented things and wanted to stop what was going on, wanted to expose the corruption. And so she found that that uh, the, the street-level dealer, that you know those drugs end up feeding the Wall Street coffers in that it's, the money is laundered through these multinational corporations, whether it be, you know, chain restaurants like Wendy's or banks, you know, of course I focus on the banks, and they are then, you know, uh, quadruple. They they end up, you know, she said, increasing the value of the stock by twenty to thirty times the amount of cash that's laundered into those corporations. And she oh says my. they call that the pop. And so, twenty to thirty times. So I figured out the fact that the fact that uh, these activists like Tupac Shakur and these former Black Panthers were getting so many street gangs to. Uh, turn into activists and stop their drug dealing, and that was happening nationwide. And even the young lords were getting, of course, the you know Latin kings to turn on to activism and stop their drug dealing. That you know that the fact that that would cost these banks, the CIA drug traffickers, and the money launderers, you know, tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars is just uh, was a staggering find. I felt you know like I couldn't believe that how that uh, connected. So, you know, that was one one just uh, very interesting thing for me. But, of course, I love Kurt Cobain and John Lennon, and um, as well as Jimi Hendrix. And uh, now, so to find the, out what those, happened to them was very, very fascinating to me, too. With those three artists and stories that you tell about them are just absolutely unbelievable. But in making the documentary, mm-hmm. were you able to get some of the musicians who experienced their confrontations either with the CIA or MI5 in England. Did you get any one of those to participate or any other living musicians to participate and help you in your film? Um, I got some musicians, like just lower level musicians to help out. You know, this uh, Electric Cold Circus was, uh, gave me their album for free to use for, you know, um, the soundtrack. But, um, Tupac Shakur's stepbrother, Mopreem Shakur, actually um, gave me a song for the uh, film, and he was directly affected by all this because um, his father is Matulu Shakur, who's a renowned black liberation leader who um, started acupuncture for drug treatment in the United States. He basically founded uh, the national group that actually was asked to to uh, come to to China and other countries to show you know the way he was doing in the United States, um, his you know particular brand of drug treatment with the acupuncture. So um, to get uh, him participating was really uh, you know enjoyable for me. And a guy named Trey D, who's an activist musician himself, did, it was, did, it was did, really enjoyable. Did you? I, I'll tell you why I asked because when I reread the book and I got to the portion uh, about Mick uh, Jagger, I thought, well, Mick. Is- still alive 
And when right. I was reading in the book about the fact that in the early 60s, he uh, was not trying to take drugs at MI5 and the CIA were trying to get him and Keith Richards to take drugs. Now, I just say this as an aside, because I started chuckling to myself, because when it comes to Mick Jagger, I think he has the most musical sounding voice in the world. So I thought maybe the CIA was going to try to get the listeners and the viewers to take the drugs to tolerate to tolerate him. And of course, <laughs> Keith Richards looks like he took cocaine uh, laced with uh, embalming fluid for crying out loud. But yeah. why? Well, in, well Richards, in, in, Richards had already done a lot of drugs, but Jagger was the big holdout amongst the Rolling Stones. He was the only one that hadn't uh, tried acid by 1967, according but, but John, to A.E. Hodgson. Hold, hold, hold on, just a second. I could understand them trying to do that to John Lennon, who was outspoken yeah. for peace and against the American empire. I never heard Mick Jagger say anything about anything other than he got no satisfaction. That's all yeah, I ever you, heard. So why were they after him to take it? Right. Well, Jack, uh, Jagger's song, it's just a shot away and, and, uh, um, you know, so he, he started coming out, he, you know, he, in interviews, he said he had started attending anti-war rallies. And then that, that, uh, that, you know, that song Street Fighting Man came out, um, you know, about those glorifying activists. And uh, Just a Shot Away was an anti-war song. And um, one of those two singles actually was the first of their singles not to break the top ten. Uh, you know, you know, ever you know, in five years, I guess it was. You know, when there was one of the first singles released, not to break the top top ten, is my understanding. And so they were sent. You know, that song was censored, and they were, they were concerned about him saying he was starting to attend uh, anti-war rallies, as was Brian Jones, who was the founder of the Rolling Stones, and really most considered him the most talented musician in the Rolling Stones. And that's why when he asked his friends John Lennon and um, Jimi Hendrix to form a new group with him. They they said they were they were seriously considering it. According to E. Hotchner, who was you know Ernest Hemingway's editor and um, was the you know it did an oral history on the Rolling Stones called called uh, I think it was called Blown Away, and so yes. you know that's um, they actually were getting more political, and so that's why they were both targeted. I argue Mick Jagger you know was targeted by an undercover MI5 agent who was also a member of the FBI, according to the Daily Mail article about that. And Schneiderman gave, got, gave and convinced Jagger to have his first hit of acid in 1967. And hours later, the police came in and, and uh, arrested Jagger and the other people, the other Rolling Stones at that party, but didn't arrest David Schneiderman, who had tons of drugs and a suitcase on him, you know, a briefcase on him. So that's you know, it's a, and then of course Brian Jones. I show the evidence of how they they murdered Brian Jones, and in my film. I have a guy saying that he was at the deathbed of a guy who submitted he killed Brian Jones. And, um, you know, of course, I also have Hotchner's accounts of of this guy uh, uh, who was in the Guinness family who said he, you know, he witnessed his friend Brian Jones getting drowned by three other guys. So, and they warned now, him, you know. Was, was all of this, I mean, you seem to indicate this in the book, that all of this was perpetrated by MI5. And the CIA, because they wanted to quell any voices or silence any voices that would be opposed to the Vietnam War. Right. Is that yes? And and so what they did first with these guys, their their agenda with these musicians was to first manipulate them to start using drugs more and more, use them, manipulate them to popularize those drugs. But when those guys 
started sobering up and, and threatened to popularize anti-war activism, then they were done away with. And that was Brian Jones's trajectory. And that was also, you know, Mick Jagger's, Mick, Mick Jagger's trajectory. And um, in his life, they, uh, I, you know, I show evidence that there was, there was, you know, there was uh, murder contracts out on him with uh, the Hell's Angels. And, you know, that was published in in uh, newspapers in the United States around that time. And they used that as, a, you know, they, they gave different excuses for why they had murder contracts on him. And, you know, it's one Hell's Angel said in court, um, you know, in, tr- in a trial. And so, you know, but the, the same pattern fit most of these people that what they did is they manipulated them to popularize drugs, but as soon as they started sobering up, they tried to do them in. And when, you know, when they, of course, threatened to promote activism more, they did them in. And the only one that's actually different than the other musicians, uh, you know, in terms of the top, say, five or six most popular musicians I talk about is that Tupac Shakur, because he was born an activist. He was born into the Black Panther Party. His mother called him the Black Prince of the Revolution. So he was, they, they tried to kill him very early on. And uh, then when they, they, you know, were unsuccessful at first, it's about the first four or five attempts, they tried to manipulate him a bit more to glorify drugs. And then when he, you know, threatened again to get, you know, sober and promote more activism, of course, they did him in. The, the astonishing thing to me is now I can understand they're going after the Beatles, they're going after Tupac Shakur, they're going after the Rolling Stones, and they're over. They're around the world. They're in England, and they're in the United States, and they're in Canada. But why on earth would they pick on somebody in a small Caribbean island like Bob Marley? Yeah, Bob Marley, the issue with Bob Marley was that he was world uh, worldwide influential, but you know, at first, when they first tried to kill him in 1976, um, they, you know, uh, some Rastas, uh, basically, I mean, some people admitted, some people in a gang in Jamaica were caught by the Rastas, admitted that the CIA paid them to try to kill, you know, shoot, murder Bob Marley and, the, Marley and his family. And they did shoot him, and they did almost kill him. They shot his wife, they shot his manager. His manager said that, um, after that unsuccessful attempt to murder Marley, and the reason they tried to murder Marley then is because he was friends with the socialist prime minister, Michael Manley, at the time. The CIA supported the uh, the guy running against Manley in the next coming election, and they really wanted uh, to win that election, and they knew that Marley could turn that election because he was so popular in Jamaica. So when Marley planned to do the small Jamaica concert right before the election, it was considered as something that would promote Michael Manley, you know, his support for Michael Manley, even though it was supposed to be more neutral. And so they tried to do Bob Marley in before that concert. So that concert actually did did get performed. Um, but first, you know, Marley was shot. They they uh, Manley put him in an encampment surrounded by soldiers, and um, to protect him. And a cameraman uh, snuck into that encampment. And it was an undercover uh, CIA agent, according to Lee Lu Lee, a, a former Black Panther who was a, became an award-winning uh, photo, you know, cinematographer. He was for, uh, filming. He was the fit part of the official film crew for that small Jamaica concert. And he said that um, the uh, CIA director's son, uh, Colby, actually infiltrated his crew. He didn't know at the time. Gave Bob Marley some gift shoes. Bob Marley tried on the shoes and got stabbed by something in the shoes. And they thought nothing of it until uh, two months later when Marley was playing soccer. So they performed the concert. Manley won the election. The socialist won the election. Bob Marley's friend. 
They were playing in a concert. I mean, they were playing in a soccer game two months later, and uh, Marley's toe got crushed, and they found it was because it had cancer in it. And that cancer quickly spread throughout his body, and he died uh, some few years later. You know, about by 1981, he died. But he was world-renowned and world-loved. I mean, African liberation leaders loved him. You know, uh, he was singing songs that, like uh, Don't Work for the CIA, Rasta Don't Work for the CIA, and, you know, Stand Up for Your Rights and things like that. And that was, that was a real big concern for the CIA. In, in, in researching all this truly disturbing material and finding how, how unbelievably successful the Central Intelligence Agency is in America is in killing all of those who advocate peace, do you not get monumentally discouraged, and do you feel sometimes hopeless about the future? Yeah, I mean, I do. I do get sad and discouraged and scared and all that. But um, I just think it's worth trying, you know. And I think, uh, you know, just like I'm sure you have gotten very discouraged, John, but you keep plugging away at it, and that's it's very inspiring that you keep doing that at this late date. And so it's, you know, I just feel like it's worth it. It's, it's, if we all keep doing this, then uh, we outnumber the oligarchs that are, you know, uh, paying for these machinations to occur, you know, and these murders and these manipulations. But, but the one thing, uh, one thing else I really appreciate it in in the, in the book was the time that you spent in the book on Gary Webb. I saw the uh, film that was released last year. I can't remember the name of the film, and I'm really Killed proud of you. Kill the Messenger, and I'm really proud of the fellow that made the film, and I tried to support the film, which I did, and gave it the positive review it did have. But tell us a little bit about Gary Webb, because here was a guy who was reporting facts about the Central Intelligence Agency dumping their cocaine into the ghettos in uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles. Tell us a little bit about Gary. So Gary Webb had won a Pulitzer Prize as a team of reporters working on another issue before this, another article. And so here he comes into this. He he uh, stumbles upon you know um, a case where he's in the trial and he sees all this evidence of CIA assets involved in drug trafficking. Um, you know, with Nicaraguan, they were associated with the Nicaraguan Contras, which were trying to topple the socialist Sandinistas that had overthrown the former dictator of Nicaragua that the CIA and the United States supported, you know, Somoza. And so um, they were trying to, you know, a lot of right-wingers were trying to topple the Sandinistas because they were spreading socialism and, you know, helping basically spreading uh, the wealth across the country, you know, getting tons of people uh, educated for the first time and and giving people free, you know, national health care and all these things that, that right-wingers in our country oppose. And so here's the, uh, con- you know, Contras. Uh, that were ever trying to overthrow the Sandinistas, spreading you know uh, tons of cocaine in the United States. Webb you know, stumbles upon that, covers the trial, finds all the evidence, covers a lot more, researches it for months and months, and comes up with this huge series of articles that the uh, San Jose Mercury News editor said we're going to run for two weeks. This is you know great work. We're going to run it for two weeks. He publishes the first week of articles. Um, it becomes the first viral, you know, internet article. It's spreading all over the country. People are, you know, can't believe these great articles exposing all this, the CIA drug trafficking of cocaine 
and then uh, using assets like um, this guy in Freeway, Ricky Ross, who was spreading around the United States on behalf of the CIA, uh, you know, whether he knew it or not, because there was the CIA assets in between them. But it was, um, you know, and so Gary Webb does this great job exposing it all, even though actually Rob Perry of Newsweek and Associated Press had actually covered this maybe a year or two or three before during the uh, Iran-Contra hearings, you know, believe it or not. So he had already covered it, and, you know, in the press accepted it, but hadn't go, there hadn't been the Internet. The Internet wasn't as popular as that, like at that time, so wow. it hadn't gone viral. Gary Webb made it go viral. And uh, and for that, um, the the media, you know, the major media, mainstream media, turned on Gary Webb, pressured the uh, publisher of the San Jose Mercury News to uh, get rid of Webb, at least send him two hours away from where he was working, you know, cut him from his job, send him two hours away, made him can the second week of the uh, article series. You know, it was supposed to be two weeks of, of articles, everyday headline articles in the San Jose Mercury News, and they only had one week. And then they retracted the, uh, they said, well, we can't stand by these first week of articles, even though they were all very solid, you know, reporting and solid evidence of all all he had in there. So he had to come out with a book about, you know, for the second week and to get all the research in there called Dark Alliance, which is an excellent book on all of his research. And uh, so they did, I'm glad they made that great movie into it called Kill the Messenger. But they basically, just, you know, the powers that be ruined Gary Webb's life his wife divorced him as he kept trying to get the word out, even though you know he had to work from two hours away. Um, he, you know, he was very, he was very down, but still actually still getting the word out and still doing good activism and still doing some reporting. When he's found with two bullets uh, in his head, and they called it a suicide, but you know how he shot himself in the head twice is very <laughs> suspect, and um, you know. And making in making. In making your documentary, as you look at it now, after the fact, for you, what is the proudest or the most thrilling moment in your film to you? Huh. Well, um, being uh, 52 years old, I, uh, I guess my, <laughs> uh, my, my biggest interest was Kurt Cobain's music and life. And uh, so... Um, I worked very hard to get the uh, to communicate the the machinations behind his setup and murder, and how that all came to be, and how um, he was manipulated. I argue to uh, promote heroin um, when when Courtney Love this. A CIA uh, asset is all I can say. What she is, I don't know. I, I, her life mimics the uh, the women. There was two women who testified at federal hearings on uh, MK Ultra and radiation under Bill Clinton. Um, Bill Clinton actually, um, someone in his staff, I forget it was Don Shalala or someone, actually had hearings, uh, federal hearings on the radiation experiments, and they apologized for the radiation experiments. This radiation experiments was a, like a little talked about aspect of MKUltra, but MKUltra was mostly about drugs, but there was also a an, an radiation side, and they, uh, they coupled them on a number of victims. And so here are two women uh, testifying with their therapist at these federal hearings, and their therapist said she only was given a week to get ready for these hearings, and during that week, 40 different other therapists called her and said, we have you know uh, patients just like yours, who we counsel, who are, we believe are MKUltra victims, who have dissociative identity disorder, which they used to call multiple personality disorder, 
and we've gotten you know healthier, but they think that they were part of the you know they were victims of the MK Ultra also, and you know to be these kinds of women that who said we were we were brought up, we were tortured, um, and you, you, drugs were used on us, LSD and radiation and other things were used on us from about the ages of four or five onwards. And uh, with CIA scientists doing these things and to be uh, CIA prostitutes and assassins. And uh, they oh broke out God. of that. They broke out of that uh, shaping to, um, to you know, go to therapy and get healthier. And they testified to their whole story. They named all the names, a lot of names I name in the book. Gittinger, you know, the top psychologist for MKUltra, um, and, and other names and wow. you know, other people in these, in that name in the book. And they said, you know, and they were about the same age as Courtney Love, and uh, they had like some of the same experiences as Courtney Love. Courtney Love said to her father, and I have her father on tape saying this in the movie, that she wrote me a letter. Courtney Love, you know, he he had basically married a woman. He didn't marry her, but he had he got he got a woman pregnant, who was adopted by this very wealthy family, the the Reeses, who owned uranium mines and owned Bausch, Bausch and Lomb stock, and were extremely wealthy. They basically took, they abused, sexually abused their adopted daughter, Linda. She calls herself Linda Carroll, even though she was last name was originally Reese. But she says in her memoirs, my, you know, her father abused, sexually abused me at a young age. And then when she had Courtney Love, she admits in her memoir, Linda Carroll, that she thinks that Courtney Love was abused at one of her child care facilities. Meanwhile, Hank Harrison, the father, um, they, they get the, uh, you know, uh, custody of, Courtney Love away from Hank Harrison. He has, doesn't see her for about eight, nine years from the ages of five to 13, and he's in a serious depression. And then when she sends him letters from a juvenile delinquent uh, facility, she says, well, you know, my therapist, who I've had since three years old, I mean, she had therapists from three years old onwards. It's totally unheard wow. of. Yeah, totally unheard of. And she says they were having sex with me regularly from three years old, you know, from my oh young age onwards. Oh, my and so that's the technique of MKUltra. They have sex with you, you know, they sexually abuse you from a young age. It splits your mind. Um, it, as a counselor, I know this because I've studied dissociative identity disorder. It's in the DSM-5, the Bible of psychiatry, the you know, dissociative identity disorder. When, when you get serious abuse from that young of an age, it splits your mind, can cause dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder. And then when they give you psychohypnotic drugs, that's part of MKUltra. She named two and all, second alls, all these MKUltra drugs that they gave her. That's part of the way they condition someone to be able to manipulate them as a multiple personality disorder victim. And that was Courtney Love's path. And then well, she... uh, John, uh, let me interrupt you for just yeah. a second. Uh, would you mind if we uh, we were going to talk for a half an hour? But would you mind staying over? Sure. Um, sure. Uh, because I want Joe Satilli to join us because I'm sure he is not only a huge fan of your work, but he knows exactly everything that you're talking about, the musicians and Gary right. Webb and the rest of it. And when I come back, I want to lead off with you telling me why on earth would they would they want to get some rid of somebody like Jimi Hendrix, the greatest guitarist who ever lived, sure. who never seemed to say one thing ever in public or that was reported against the, the Vietnam War or against the American establishment or the American Empire. We're going to take a brief, brief break and we'll be right back to continue with the story. Plus, I want to know about what film festivals that you've entered, the reaction, the, the reviews of the film, how people can get the film and how people can get the book. We'll be right back 
with Joe Satilli to join John Potash. Thank you for that smile upon your This is John Barber. You may remember me as the co-host, producer, and creator of Real People, America's first reality show, or most recently as the writer-director of what's been called the definitive documentary on JFK's murder, The Last Word on the Assassination. Now I'm doing a show every other Monday from 5 to 6 Pacific Time on BBS. You'll hear provocative views, unreported news, and film reviews from me with outstanding guests and you. Join me on John Barber's World. Hi, I'm Richard Valzer. This is the great BBS Radio. Hello, this is John Barber telling you about the long-running hit TV series Criminal Minds, now in its 13th year. Criminal Minds explores the work of talented FBI profilers who seek to unravel crime cases through behavioral profiling. Follow the efforts and lives of these elite profilers as they analyze the nation's most dangerous criminal minds in an effort to anticipate their next moves before they strike again. Criminal Minds airs Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 Central. A must-see. Don't miss it. Bye now. Great music from all the greatest performers from sunup to sundown. How do you keep the music playing? Then, great talk all night. The mysteries of UFOs, conspiracy theories, and the true story of Las Vegas that has never been told. There are three ways to listen to KIYQ. Go to the TuneIn app, just search for KIYQ, or go to www.kiyq.org. Listen from any telephone, call 605-477-2857. That's 605-477-2857. Long distance charges may apply. KIYQ 107.1. You're listening to BBS Radio. If it's not mainstream, it's on bbsradio.com. Those of you who have an ongoing interest in the JFK assassination might want to know about this. TV producer John Barber. He put together a dream team of JFK researchers, including Coast regular Jim Mars and uh, world-class JFK writers Dick Russell and Joan Mellon, They all got together at UNLV in front of a live audience. They had a screening of Barber's terrific, and I'd say historic, film based on interviews with uh, prosecutor Jim Garrison of New Orleans. And then after the film was shown, the experts all talked about the latest JFK theories and evidence. It's now out on a DVD. Terrific stuff. I'm George Knack, Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back to John Barber's World, and I want to thank George Knapp for that unsolicited great review of The Last Word on the Assassination. But I want to add, you no longer have to go to Amazon to see it. You can see it free 
on my website. If you go to YouTube forward slash johnbarbersworld.com, not only will you see that fantastic documentary, you will see the entire movie, the first original, the Garrison Tapes, followed by a fantastic panel, the best panel ever assembled, Joan Mellon, Dick Russell, and and Jim Mars, who should have taken their act to off-Broadway because they are are thrilling. Plus, at the top of the show, you can hear Frank Sinatra introducing me the night he was on The Tonight Show. If you go to my set, you will see the following monologue that I did. And you can also, since Red Fox was my mentor when I started as a comic, you can see that too. And somebody wrote to me and said, how on earth is it that that a comic, for crying out loud, is the guy that is doing the Jim Garrison story, became Jim Garrison's Boswell. And I said, well, first of all, it is so appropriate that a comic do this because the sickest joke in America is the Warren Report. Anyway, I want to welcome to the show somebody without whom I could not do the show with and somebody who informs me every single day and has one of the most successful the most objective and the the best newsletter in America. It's called News Vandal, and he's joining me to join the discussion with John Potash. Joe, thank you so much for being here again, and welcome to the show. Say hello to John, and John, would you answer my question before we went to break? I ask you, why on earth would they want to murder this fabulous Guitar player Jimi Hendrix. Go ahead. And hello, John. And now hey, you can Joe. continue with Thanks the Hendrix so story. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing the time with me, Joe. So the reason they uh, they would want to kill Jimi Hendrix is partly. Um, so there there was a, a top general. I feel like, I think his name was Tisdale. I forget his Lansdale, who said yes, that Ed Lansdale. Ed Lansdale. Yeah. yeah, I think it was Lansdale. But one of either him or another guy said one of their biggest fears. Was the unifying of the of the Black Liberation Movement and the anti-war movement, and so you know here was Jimi Hendrix who threatened to be that kind of tie to those two groups. Now, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, Jimi Hendrix went into serious depression about that. He was very sad about that, and that he, originally the Black Panthers approached Jimi Hendrix and he refused to help them in any way. After Martin Luther King's assassination, he, he said uh, he started. You know, making saying I'm gonna tri- uh, make a tribute of my last album to the Black Panthers. In interviews, he said, you know, when uh, you got when you're having problems with with what's going on in the world, you got to get your Black Panthers. And so he started espousing uh, positive things about the Panthers. He started telling his fiancee Monica Daneman, according to her book, The Inner World of Jimi Hendrix. He started you know, calling his friend Bob Dylan and saying, I'm you know I'm forming a new peace group, an anti-war group. And he's, he had all these plans, all these activist plans. And so in his last two years of life, I argue, he had an activist agenda. But, of course, mainstream media did not uh, put that out there in a huge way. They tried to cover that up. But if you look very carefully at the media like I did, you'll see these interviews of him saying these different things. And, of course, in uh, Monica Daneman's book, which she was threatened not to publish, and Mike Jeffrey had stolen from her at one point, she believes, and, and threatened her life if she put it out there. She has a lot of his activist plans. And then, of course, Mike Jeffrey, I have, uh, you know, uh, different accounts. Um, James Tappy Wright, the the uh, roadie for Jimi Hendrix, said that, that Mike Jeffrey admitted to him when he was drunk that he had Hendrix killed. 
And so Mike Jeffrey was supposedly former MI6, which is, you know, of course, American, uh, British CIA. And, uh, but, you know, people just aren't former. They usually keep going, and I argue and show the evidence that he was undercover MI6 and had gotten himself in, into Jimi Hendrix's life when he needed that kind of management but then stayed there, and Jimi Hendrix kept trying to fire him and couldn't. When he finally fired him within 48 hours, you know, Mike, uh, Jimi Hendrix is dead. And so, oh, my God. Uh, John, uh, would, yes, you go say ahead, that, Joe. would you say that this broadly falls under a category we could call social engineering? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. And the reason I ask that, you know, there's a reason why the adage or cliche, if you're cynical about it, doesn't go unite and conquer, right? It goes, mm -hmm. the adage is divide and conquer. And right. it seems to me that what you are detailing and the relevance of why Jimi Hendrix was killed and who killed him echoes today is that mm -hmm. culture war still is the primary political currency of the American political life. Definitely, And yeah. this, this divide, which opened up, maybe initially it was about controlling opposition to the Vietnam War, but it seems to me that as you get into the, into the late 60s and particularly into the early 70s, it's really about exacerbating social divides so that you do not see coalitions of people forming together. What you do is you pit people. And the most important co uh, coalition to break is that between social activists and the working class. And how do you see the intersection between that and what you've been detailing over the course of your career uh, with these um, uh, assassinations of music figures? Yeah, I mean, there was, I think there was a constant attempt to do that. And uh, some these figures were kind of unifying figures. They were, they were figures that were really universally beloved, I would say. And, you know, there's other figures in music that uh, were part of, they would say, like the hippie movement, like, you know, intensely part of the hippie movement, you know, and were totally encouraging uh, loads of acid use and totally encouraging, like, kind of dropping out more than becoming activists. And they were the ones that were kept alive for decades and kept popular in different ways. And the ones, the unifying figures, um, the ones like, you know, even though Janis Joplin would, could be considered more of the, you know, hippie movement, she would refuse to, to take LSD. She tried it once or twice. She hated it, and she tried to stay away from it. She was trying to kick heroin when, you know, when people uh, manipulated her to try heroin. So her first fiancé actually got her addicted to speed, and they found, and he had admitted to another girlfriend that he is part of the FBI, and, and his history shows that he was, he was you know, definitely intelligence. And so, you know, and he was actually married um, while he was engaged to her, married and had kids. So, um, you know, this is like these kinds of figures that are killed off young were actually, um, you know, outside the box, I would say, and not these kind of stereotypes that were these uh, cultural figures that were you know, creating more of a hippie dropout kind of movement that's so, totally separated from the working class. Or, you know, uh, even people like Kurt Cobain was a pretty down-to-earth, not uh, gothic, not anything you know different than the kind of you know average you know American, and uh, and they, those are the kinds that are mo the most dangerous, I think, to uh, powers that be. You know, well, maybe it's even enough guys. to just demoralize a generation by having them lose one of their cultural touchstones, which Cobain was for the the Gen X and what would sort of the emergent oh. millennial. Uh, uh, population. He was a touchstone yeah. for them. The person really I'm most, yeah. most I'm most fascinated with is Lennon, because mm -hmm. John Lennon is killed basically 
as the as the Reagan administration is coming in, and what does the Reagan administration want to do? They want to send the MX missile expanded in Europe. Who is going to be out there leading the marches against the MX missile in Europe? You know it's going to be John Lennon. After right. being out of the public eye for a long period of time, he emerges with Double Fantasy with, with three big hits on that album. I just said wildly successful immediately. And when he was killed, I've often wondered, I wonder if you could chime in on this. Mm -hmm. I've often thought that Mark David Chapman and John Hinckley Jr., who are both obsessed with Catcher in the Rye, interestingly enough, that yeah. that that the Lennon assassination was, in a sense, a twofer. It was a dry run to see if the Hinckley uh, trigger would work and cause Hinckley to, to shoot Reagan. That's number one. And two, you eliminate probably the most unifying figure in the history of music other than Bob Dylan. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, Lennon had already sent out a press release saying he was going to be at the, the head of a march for, the, for a Teamsters group, you know, that was, that was doing some activist work in, in the ports. And so he was already breaking out into activism as soon as his albums were coming out, you know. Um, so he was, he was definitely a unifying figure. He was threatening to get much more activist. He was, had already settled down and gotten, you know, it sobered up a good bit. So he he was a threat in a lot of ways, and he was a declared socialist in the you know early 1970s. So he was a big threat, no doubt. And so here you got this uh, Mark David Chapman who's uh, taken loads of drugs. There's lots of evidence, according to uh, Fenton Bressler, who was an attorney and a uh, you know a criminal reporter for a daily newspaper in England. He did a seven-year investigation and found um, all kinds of evidence about Hinckley that, uh, you know, he was manipulated by the CIA. He was what we would say hypnotized, and they used drugs to, um, when he was in a mental hospital for a while, to do what he did. And, and yes, and I, the trigger was the catcher in the rye, they find. And, and it's, no, it's surely no coincidence that it was the same thing happened with Hinckley. Because uh, you, know, you know Reagan was just a puppet, and uh, you know Bush Senior was the real head of everything. And, well, know, I would actually Cheney say that Reagan Reagan was actually dangerous because Reagan earnestly wanted to end the Cold War. I no, I was not a Reagan fan. Mm -hmm. I you know I was mm -hmm. a punk rocker in the early '80s. I had my anti-Reagan T-shirts and my colored hair, <laughs> but. Yeah. But he actually earnestly wanted to end the Cold War, as evidenced by Reykjavik, when Richard Pearl had to talk him out of basically going for broke and saying to Gorbachev, hey, let's, get, let's just ban all of our nuclear weapons. So yeah, by eliminating Reagan, you eliminate somebody who George Herbert Walker Bush and the CIA cadre around him despised in the primaries leading up to Reagan getting the nomination. And Herbert Walker Bush... I don't know if it's an apocryphal story, but apparently he was forced onto the ticket by Nelson Rockefeller back, backstage at the convention when Nelson Rockefeller said, if you don't put Herbert Walker Bush on the ticket with you, I will make sure you do not win this election. So There's uh, something else that I'd like to interject here, and I don't know if it's hearsay or not, but when uh, George Bush was forced onto the ticket, which I think is quite true, it, in Langley, Virginia, the CIA offices they had the large poster of Ronald Reagan for president uh, next to George Bush vice president. And what they did is they scissored out and they cut out the part of Reagan. So they only had Bush's picture up there. But I'm going to interject something. It's a story that I heard on May Brussel years and years ago that was so frightening I could not think about it until I read your book, John. 
And I don't know if you know of this story or not. I don't know if you know much about May Brussel. I know but May Brussel, sure. She, like, talked, about, she Brussel. talked about how the main purpose of the U.S. military and intelligence back in the uh, 60s was to get rid of the flower child movement, which was burgeoning in California. And the way they did that was they set up the slaughter of Sharon Tate while she was pregnant and her friends, Sebring the hair designer, and that uh, she claims that Charlie Manson had nothing to do with it. It was Tex Watson, another one of those MKL through things. And she points out that no hippies on marijuana can uh, climb up telephone poles and cut wires. Only the, only the military can do that. And once that horror was committed, the flower child movement was over in America. And it was such a horrible story. I kept thinking, what a movie this would make, but who would ever make the movie? And it was yeah. so dark. And it's yeah. still do- so dark to me, I can't even think about it. And yeah, I, I didn't love, think I love May Brussel. But, yeah. but I think the best, some of the best takes on uh, that whole situation come from, I think Dave McGowan's actually done the best new work on that that um, you know, flower, like the hippie movement and all, and so I, I totally agree with May Brussel when when what she said it was. I, I think it was definitely an intelligence operation, uh, and Manson was kind of the figurehead of what was really an intelligence operation with those Manson murders, and because those, those women um, were clearly you know hypnotized and drugs used, similar to Hinckley, similar to uh, Chapman, and similar to Courtney Love. They were and prostitutes and, and porno stars. And Sirhan. And Sirhan, yeah, and Sirhan. Sirhan. Sure, of course, and Sirhan, Sirhan. And so, you know, that's what they were. They were prostitutes and porno stars as women that worked for. They were, you know, doing porn movies at that time. And so they were, Manson was just uh, kind of part of that MK Ultra hypnotizing and all that. And it was a U.S. intelligence operation. Tex Watson was, you know, could could do his thing. And, you know, it's whatever. But the 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 hippie movement that um, I think McGowan shows great evidence of in his book Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. And sadly enough, he died uh, four months after I started talking with him uh, about you know uh, he died of cancer after he was warned that someone like you writing about stuff you write about can just find themselves with stage four cancer. All of a sudden, oh my God. he finds himself with stage four cancer several months later. And so, um, and that was very scary for me, and that's why I'm not going to be at my next film showing in Los Angeles, which is actually um, <laughs> Wednesday, Wednesday, uh, uh, July 25th at 2 p.m. Uh, at the Area Fine Arts, you know, whatever, Fine Arts Center in Beverly Hills. They're showing oh, this Love International Film Festival, showing the film, and, the sh- and Dave McGowan's in it for about 30 seconds. Because he did great work, and I think in his book he shows how the Laurel Canyon neighborhood just, just all of a sudden, you know, became this site where all of these incredible musicians just became instant stars, and it's no coincidence because not all of them had that much talent for one thing, but the other thing is that um, there was a Lookout Mountain film studio there that was run by the Air Force for decades. Lookout Mountain was the largest, most technically technically advanced film studio in the world. And all of these stars, you can name, you know, you know most of their names, signed confidentiality agreements there. You know, Marilyn Monroe and all these other stars, all these producers, Walt Disney and all these people signed confidentiality agreements. 
And so wow. tons, thousands and thousands of movies came out of this, this uh, film studio, and yet we were not allowed to even know what, what movies actually came out of there. And so wow. you know, they said they closed in 69, but the evidence shows it lasted a lot longer, and surely they moved it to just another you know, confidential site, and that's what Hollywood's about. But in that area, all these musicians rose up that were, you know, started the, the hippie movement, you know, the, the summer of love. And what that was yeah. is that was these parties in Laurel Canyon that just brought people like John Lennon there, got him to do acid for a second time, you know, without being dosed, because all these people appear to be, uh, you know, either directly or indirectly doing intelligence bidding and, and trying to promote acid like crazy and trying to promote this hippie lifestyle like crazy. And granted, the anti-war movement is great to promote, but the hippie lifestyle seemed to be a little bit of a diversion from the anti-war movement and also seemed to uh, hurt the minds of the great anti-war activists like Students for Democratic Society. When they started tripping, they started saying crazy crap like, uh, sadly enough, Catherine, uh, I'm sorry, Bernadine Dorn had SDS, had the weather underground when she says, you know, it's, it's called, you know, 1960, 1970 or whatever, 1969, the year of the fork for celebrating, you know, them sticking a fork in Sharon Tate's pregnant belly. So she lost her mind, you know, on acid to say something like that. And she sobered up some months after that and, and apologized for her comment. But, you know, that was the tone over there, and that's what was happening with John. John, uh, how, how, how is your film doing at the festivals? And again, when is it screening in Los Angeles? Because I'll, uh, I'll call my son. He would probably, he, I know he would love to see it. Where is I it could. playing and when? It's, it's, so it's playing at the, um, uh, it's called the, uh, sorry about that, the Area A-H-R-Y-A Fine Arts Theater at 8556 Wilshire Boulevard, Beverly Hills, California, at the Love International Film Festival on Wednesday, July 25th at 2 p.m. And sorry about the hokey name of the film festival, but it's apparently a good uh, film festival. And uh, how how is it done at some of the other festivals? Well, it's this is only its second film festival that's showing in. The first film festival was a Connecticut one called Film Fest Film Fest Fifty Two, and it showed at a place called um, Bethel Cinema in Connecticut. And I just haven't heard of uh, the response there. I actually should have taken off work and gone up there, and you know, and did Q and A afterwards, but something was going on at work where I couldn't take off of work. And so I, I just couldn't find out. But so that was, it's well, showing. you, ha- you have been show. much more successful with your film at festivals than I have. I entered 22 and I it was turned down by everyone. I, incl- I uh, even entered it in the Moscow film festival. Cause I told <laughs> Joe, I wanted Putin to do for me what he did for Trump. So if, if, uh, if, if people want to see the, the documentary, how can they see it? Well, I, I got a distributor, uh, Gravitas Ventures, and they're just, they're um, putting it out in November. Hopefully, it's at movie theaters, but I'm not sure. We'll see. But I know they're putting it out in November, and then they're releasing it on DVD. And so um, the DVD will have extras, the deleted scenes, so you'll see more than two hours, up to about two hours and 15, you know, twelve minutes or something. But um, so hopefully, it's going to get on. Some other platforms, we'll see. I don't know if it'll be maybe Netflix, maybe Roku. I, I just don't know. We'll see in November what it, what it gets, you know, what theaters it might get into and where else it might get into. I already have people who say they have connections to theaters in different places in the country that say they're going in November they're going to try to get into their theaters, so we'll see. Well, in November, we'll have you back on. Until then, 
where can they go to get your two two fabulous books? Uh, thanks a lot. It's uh, well, it's available. Drugs as Weapons Against Us is a bigger release, so that's available at Barnes and Noble. A lot of the bookstores have it on the shelves, but if it's not there, they say they can get it on the shelf in two to three days if you order it. But so Barnes and Noble, you can also order it, of course, on Amazon.com and and uh, a number of other independent bookstores also house house the book, shelf the book. So. Well, that's fabulous. Joe, where can folks go to get to News Vandal? Uh, by the way, your redesign of News Vandal is absolutely fabulous. Yeah, and, thanks for that. Uh, they can go to info at newsvandal.com. And guys, I'm going to go because the uh, celebrity of president is about to choose a Supreme Court or announce <laughs> a Supreme Court pick. Okay. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I, I really... The both of you are just absolutely terrific. Everybody who listened, thanks for joining us. And we'll talk to you again in two weeks. And remember, the only difference between the Democrats and the Republicans is the spelling. So as Ed Murray used to say, good night and good luck. Sunny, 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 I love you.